Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Dedicated to Henry Farman. In the year of the primal force, the war of terrestrial birth, man masters the mammoth and horse. Don't need to wait for an invitation. You gotta live like you're on vacation. There's something sweet you can't buy with money. Lick it up, lick it up. It's all you need, so believe me, honey. It ain't a crime to be good to yourself. Be good to yourself. Words to live by. My friends, this is Alan Averill. This is Agitators Anonymous. Episode 119 is Rock Dead. Blah, 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 blah. Did I talk about this kind of thing before? Well, who knows? Episode 119. I'm going to try and take a little practical look at the reasons why metal, whatever you want to call it, rock and roll, is dead in the mainstream. And and is Mr. Simmons right? And are you better off trying to live like you're on vacation? Who knows? Will you even be allowed to take a vacation? So it's Friday's Agitators Anonymous. And I have timed sitting by the canal in Dublin to perfection. 2 p.m. The office workers are heading back inside. The sun is shining. It's a heat wave, although less so now. But I got my daily allotted Ginger Outdoors card stamped by the authorities. They have stamped my card. But be warned, say the newspapers, thousands could die because of our heat wave. It's 27 degrees. Thousands. I mean, hey, they didn't seem that worried about the thousands that could have died because they didn't see a doctor during lockdown. But anyway, I promise I won't be talking about any of that kind of stuff. As Ireland heads up to a whopping 30 degrees, um, Definitely live your life like you're on vacation, if you can. Like as if no one in the country ever went on holiday to a hotter country, uh, i.e. everywhere, but anyway. Oh, here he comes, angry Averill. Get back in your box, old son. My vitamin D dopamine hit is incoming, so let's keep the politics for another day. Actually, someone in my comments said that I'm like the heavy metal computing forever. Now, I don't know if you... um. If you subscribed to that channel, Computing Forever, but it was removed during lockdown. Um, And it was pretty dark and heavy stuff, to say the least, all about the coming technocracy 
um, the WBF, digital oligarchy, rolling lockdowns, etc., etc. And I thought, damn, am I really that negative? Because I know I had to ration computing forever. Uh, and the channel during lockdown has genuinely made me uh, somewhat despairing. Surely this Agitators Anonymous is not creating despair in your grey matter. Surely not. Don't call me surely. Um, but damn, am I really that negative? Um, well, and it genuinely, genuinely, um, by the same token, he, let's just say this, that channel, he was captive also to his audience. And this was what they wanted to hear. Um, I would like to think that I try and mix it up a bit more, Sir Mix-a-Lot. And not to say, of course, some of it was no doubt true, but it did get a bit much. Because certainly what can happen is if things seem so damn hopeless, normal people just switch off. What can I do? Nothing. So therefore, fuck it. Let's get fucked up. Pour me another sweet glass of nihilism, my friends. You can see why... Um, but did he pepper his podcast with daft impressions and silly voices and commentary about rock and roll? No, no, my fellow fiends, he never did. And did he ever talk about the good old-fashioned rock and roll days? No. By the way, if you need some rock and roll light relief, I would advise watching the making of Here and Aid on YouTube. This will put a smile on your face. Um, if any of you did not know... Um, and this is sparked by a little conversation we had about Led Zeppelin, me and my friends the other day. Led Zeppelin reformed in 1986 for uh, Live Aid, but it would seem did not rehearse and just went, yeah, we'll do it. And Phil Collins went, yeah, I'll play the drums. And the whole thing was a mess. Um, and they took it off the DVD reissue of Live Aid. And so this got us talking about Live Aid and watching it live at the time on TV and it was one of the kind of seminal moments from when you were a kid. And um, you all, everyone remembers the kind of the day it was when they saw Live Aid. And of course, that famous Queen show and all that kind of thing. But um, Dio and Vivian Campbell, who, of course, is still playing in Def Leppard and all that kind of thing now, put uh, wrote a song and put together a heavy metal version, a charity single. And um, we are stars, um, which you can see the making of on YouTube, which is absolutely incredible. Uh, Vince Neil and all these kind of people discussing about how, um, you know, they aren't just evil rock stars counting their money and want to do what they can for all the starving folks over there in Africa. It's comedy gold and has some amazing singing in it, has some really, really um, amazing uh, sections of soloing. You've got Ingvi Malmsteen, a young Ingvi there just ripping it up uh, after poor old Eddie from Twisted Sister trying to do the same thing. Uh, there's like a million solos. You've got some great vocals going on. Dio's there, of course. How the guy from Rough Cut, Paul Shortino, gets to sing a verse instead of Blackie Lawless, I do not know, but it's hilarious. You've got to imagine how many, um, what was the cue for the men's toilets like um, <laughs> to get in and do a few bumps or two that afternoon when they were making uh, Here and Aid. Anyway, it's an aside. It's an aside. Rock and roll light relief, my friends. So I realize I preamble into podcasts for way too long, explaining what I'm going to talk about for longer than some of the points I make. So let's get, let's get fisted right up to our wrists right away. Gene Simmons says, rock is dead. Fans killed it. And various other people say, no, it's not. So I'm going to try and take on what he says on face value and figure out whether I agree with him or not. So let's see what he's saying. He says, I stand by my words. Rock is dead. The people that killed it are fans. 
Fans killed the thing they loved by downloading and file sharing for free. How do you expect someone who loves the guitar to come into this creative process? You've got to invent yourself. And so rock is dead. Um, so, well, so first of all, I think what he's trying to say there is um, I, I would personally blame the streaming services more. They're just giving people, um, you know, a convenient, easy way out of having to deal directly with bands or, you know, you give people this other um, far more convenient way to process music and this is just kind of how it goes. But of course, I think laying the blame of the fans is probably incorrect because most people don't really quite still to this day understand um, how little bands get paid out of streaming. They just want the convenience of it. Um, and certainly Spotify, um, as the article I'm reading this from says, the uh, guy goes on to say who wrote the article, Spotify aren't paying any small to medium artist bills and probably some bigger than that. And that's certainly the truth. The top tiny few percent, maybe. But it's really the streaming services business model and um, a society that just wants convenience that has far more to do with it. But let's just look at these things a bit in a bit more detail. First things first. Um, Gene Simmons is about 70, 71, and one of the main and much quoted reposts, reposts, as they say, to his claim was from Alice Cooper, another septuagenarian rock star, both millionaires who have made their money. And I think the um, the conversation changes when you have fuck off money. It's one of the reasons why Ricky Gervais or Dave Chappelle can get away with saying a lot of the things they say in comedy because they're too rich to cancel. They're too rich to really for it to have any difference. Regardless of what Jim Simmons thinks about rock, they can still headline festivals and get paid hundreds of thousands of dollars. Regardless, um, his kids don't have to work and probably their kids' kids don't have to work. So the situation is a little bit different. Um but as much of the commentary seems to be pushing back and forwards, um, isn't it kind of really old white dudes discussing why things aren't the way they used to be back in 1978? Um, you know, I mean, that's a kind of cynical way to look at it, but it's kind of true. And they certainly aren't. They do have a point. There is no doubt that they aren't even like they were in 1988 or even in 1998 or, hey, 2008. Alice Cooper makes the point that Rock has returned underground. It's the genuine anti-establishment thing, the outsider music once again. I can see the point, but that also has a few flaws as an analysis, because I don't think it takes into account the uh, progress and sort of movement of technology, which sort of outstrips its cultural relevance. So let's have a look at it. So I would contend that rock is indeed dead in the mainstream, at least. It's not dead as a genre, um, and across the world, there's no doubt most of you listening to this will be in the middle of a summer of festivals, big and small, showcasing great metal bands and wondering, hey, what's the big deal with any of this as a talking point? And there's no doubt festivals like Vakken and Hellfest are huge. They're hardly underground, are they? Although they certainly have underground bands peppering the lineup. Of course they do. Well, you know, that said, the headliners... I would wager that most of those older bands' sales and hits happened back in the 70s, 80s and 90s. The bands, the bands headlining, who are newer, have their roots going back at least 10 or 20 years and most likely very respectable streaming numbers. But compared to pop music, few can compete, if at all. And very, very few manage to make a, any kind of a living from streaming. And I would say this about if you were to objectively take the lineup of a Hellfest and go through it, 
and take out the bands that are already millionaires, the bands that are already rich, the bands that are getting paid hundreds of thousands of dollars or euros for being there, the headliners, and really look at, um, say, even on our own stage, the stage that Primordial appeared, the Temple stage, and you really were to take all of those bands and go, who, which, which musician here is actually making a living from playing music? Um, let's start at midday and go all the way to the headliner. So that would be on our stage. I don't remember who the very first band was. Band was all the way to Mayhem and Anabath. Anabath. And I know from personal conversations with the Mayhem guys that they're struggling and they all do other things as well. So perhaps, perhaps could it be that on that stage, Abath might be the only one musician who is making a living from playing music, unless there's a couple of guys on there who are session people who are playing with a bunch of bands. Um, maybe Sarkis and Rotting Christ, but that's also, you know, to do with the cost of living in Greece. Um, who is actually making a living from music there? And you would find that the chances are that the people who are the crew on the stage are um, more likely to be making a living than almost any musician on that stage. Anyway, so that's a small aside to a reason why, you know, <laughs> rock just doesn't pay the bills so therefore it's something of a kind of cul-de-sac of a career choice isn't it and I think that's what Gene Simmons was getting at is that there's the how we say the gate that was once open to get out of the pen and out into the pastures of becoming an actual musician becoming um, a professional musician and actually making a living that is now most certainly either um, locked and you have no access to that or you're going to be one of the few people who managed to jump the gate. But it's certainly that small aperture, shall we say, that small portal that you may, may be allowed to step through into um, financial, a form at least of financial financial security, or the security at least that provides you with um, being able to get up in the morning and going, well, today I'm going to be creative and write songs that once upon a time um, was open for bands is certainly closed. Now, I don't know if any of you look at Justin Hawkins from The Darkness, his YouTube channel. It's great. I've sang his praises many times on the podcast for the last few Darkness albums. Meh, not so much. Um, although I'm a fan. But if I'm not incorrect, he was discussing something a little bit like what I'm discussing now. And I think he stated that two, two of the top 200 um, uh, albums in the USA last year were rock. Two. Um, and I presume that's like the Foo Fighters and something else um, who are like the nadir of rock music. This is rock music, anaesthetized rock music without any of the danger. Give me Iron Fist every day of the week. However, um, if he is not incorrect, then that literally means that every single album that is streaming, you know, that has high streaming numbers that is getting into the charts is, you know, hip hop is dance music is electronic music is uh, rap is, you know, whatever else. It's just pop music. So why is rock so dead in the mainstream? Here are some reasons. Some of you will seem seem self-explanatory. Some will seem obvious. Some will be some will might be a bit contentious and some might seem a bit odd, but I think they're the most important. So come at me in the comments and let me know if you agree or you disagree. Now, it's up to you, of course, if you care or not. I mean, if someone shrugged their shoulders and said, who gives a fuck? Um, they would also be right. Who does? But that would make for a short and rather boring podcast. So first off, 
Before we begin, let me say that the podcast sponsors are www.metalblade.com. In North America, which is Canada and the North of America, you can get um, 10% off your order by using the promo code ALAN. Now, I just got a bunch of those first few Cannibal Corpse albums back in the post um, with an original cover of um, Tomb of the Mutilated. Oof, that's a nasty record, isn't it? Yeah, you, you, sh- you need to own that. We do need to own that. Also, Hate Couture, www.hatecouture616.com forward slash hateful yet tasteful apparel. Do you need a t-shirt to really piss off your friends um, that venerates a diabolical tyrant? Of course you do. Click on the links below. Right, so let's get into it. Firstly, and I'll make the obs- this observation shorter than normal, as I've mentioned it before. And this is kind of important. And that is that streams are driven by kids, young kids, which is the reason why most pop music is so, well, to me, childish sounding uh, to appeal to kids. But your average mainstream pop fan who drives the streams, let's be clear, they are between seven and 13 or 14 years old. I always refer to this, the drummer from the Black Keys on Joe Rogan makes this point very clearly. And, you, you know, not the last interview, but the previous interview. He's very entertaining and should actually have his own podcast. Well, maybe he does. But, and that's what drives millions um, of plays on modern pop songs. Kids playing them over and over again. Maybe some of you have kids, anecdotally, talking to my friends who do. They go, yeah, um, you know, X or Y kid will play that song 30, 40 times in one day over and over again. I mean, of course, this points to the death of the album and people's attention spans. But back in the day, don't forget, you bought that seven inch and you played it. So that was one purchase. And then your plays were kind of on your own times. But now imagine you own nothing and you will be happy. But you stream the song um, 50, 100 times. I remember dragging my poor grandfather um, into uh, Dublin and borrowing two pounds off him to buy Manowar, Blow Your Speakers in 1987, the 7-inch, which I still have, by the way. Um, and then we used to play that song and fight in the world while we played Dungeons & Dragons. Yeah, I know, you're getting all Stranger Things on me. Oh, isn't that so romantic and nostalgic and blah, blah, blah. Shut it. It was heavy metal. Anyway, so... We would play that record and we would play Fight in the World over and over and over. And we'd play Blow Your Speakers over and over and over again. And it was the equivalent. I was, I guess I was 1987, so I was 11 or 12. And so remember when you were a kid. Remember when you were a kid and you found a song you liked. Like I said, you played it incessantly. So the fact that pop music is aimed at pre-adolescence, um, who, let's be clear, are much more internet savvy um, we are than obviously, and most of their parents are, is part of the reason. Adults... They might buy the vinyl. They sit and play it. And, but it's one purchase. Like I just streamed the new Mantar album that I've been talking about on the Tuesday's podcast about six, seven, eight, nine, ten times. And I'm now waiting on the vinyl. Then I'll play it from there. But they're a great single from this album, Odysseus. Just imagine this was, I don't know, an early 90s track from Pearl Jam or Therapy or Alice in Chains or Soundgarden or Nirvana. How often my angsty sister would stream, would have streamed that song from her room every day. Dozens and dozens and dozens or more. Kids drive streams. And this ain't good for rock music because rock music is not resonating with 9, 10, 11, 12 year olds. Now, that may be a good thing you say. Well, so why is that? The game of social media. A band is too hard to generally market. Take a look at a mainstream indie or pop festival from the 90s. 
Um, and it's going to be all bands. Now it's names of people, whether it's the Ed Sheeranization, um, James Blunt, Imelda May, Ariana Grande, whoever it may be. And I won't pretend to know all the names of all the DJs, the rappers, the hip hop people, um, but they are names. Um, you know, Dizzy Rascal, whatever. Um, one person, easy to brand on social media, Machine Gun Kelly, who's often spoken of in terms of saving rock, which is, of course, nonsense, as it just sounds like um, childish pop music to me. But is this rock? Um, all these people, Lil Nas, whatever that guy's name is with the tattoos on his eyes and I'm tired on his face. I can't remember his name. Again, just names of people. So Machine Gun Kelly. I mean, look, it sounds like, um, you know, music for 11 year olds meets Blink-182 or something. But again, one person, one message, one brand. The Instagram marketing team don't want a band clogging up the message. Or if they do, then the people in the band need to find jobs when it comes to their online game. Yeah, it's a horrible thing to talk about. And look, yeah, I get it. Who gives a fuck, really? Um, we can all just play clandestine plays or, you know, we, you know, if you're Mugwa and you're that talented, you don't need it. But look, this is just a topic of the podcast. It's called Agitators Anonymous. What do you want? So the online game becomes 75% of a new artist's work. Twitch, TikTok, whatever you want. Um, and we mentioned it before, and I think it's a good point, but music has become, music has ceased to become the soundtrack to our lives, but it's the backdrop to our narcissism or whatever it is um, you want to call it. Um, you are the star of the show and music is simply bent in shape to provide the background to your morning gym routine or a kid's TikTok dance or whatever it is. And how can this help bands, The Cure, The Smiths, Metallica? Music reduced, being reduced to a 50, 15 or 30 second sample as a backdrop to you and whatever your kid is doing or whatever in your life at that moment. It is, of course, anathema to everything that music should be. But this is often how kids digest music now. My mate said he's pushing his son to learn the bass and he suggested he form a band. Um, and the son goes, how do I do that? How do I do that? And this is super important. And this is something I think about a lot. That is the atomization of society. What does that mean? That means the, um, I suppose, the, well, before I get into my version of what atom atomization means, let's just say um, the dictionary definition is separating something into fine particles, atomization, fragmentization, division, the access, of access the act or access of dividing. Um, atomization, annihilation by reducing something to atoms, atomization. So what do we really mean when it, we talk about this in societal terms? I suppose what we really mean is how people are just um, further and further stranded from each other, separated from each other. The lines of connection through cultural, social means are different now. We are atomized from each other because this is not a conversation I'm having with you. You are listening to a podcast on a digital machine. Um, we are separated by, vert you know, by, um, separated by elements of technology to, go to a greater and greater degree. So the atomization of society, we are becoming lonelier. And this is clear. The success of podcasts points to that. But most kids now, when polled, say uh, that most of their meaningful relationships are online. Their first relationships are online. Now, it sounds very sad because it is, but kids don't have mates like they used to be. I remember playing 
ACDC when I was 11 in the front room and me and my friends had an air band, a revolving door of air musicians waiting to join. And it has to be said, I always wanted to be Bon Scott. So at 11, it was in my head, this is great. I want to be in a band. The idea of getting together with some mates to make noise in a room. Um, I'd kind of started this journey already at 13 years old, already with my first band. Um, and we were allowed to do this in our school to book the jam room and you know bang around on the drums and plug in a guitar out of tune and try and play Blitzkrieg Bop by the Ramones. But if kids are behind a screen all the time now, then how do they start this band? And then how does that rock band come out of that? It makes sense, right? Um, to go back to the source of where all these these seeds are germinated. These seeds of rock are germinated. And the more and more you remove the coefficients, the less likely that they happen. And if they are behind a screen, and this is very important, I think, what kind of music does it encourage? Electronic music, hip-hop, rapping, grime, I guess. Music you can make simply on your own. Um, you can create beats on your own and you can rap over it or whatever. I'm not going to pretend I completely understand the process, but at least judging by the sound of it, it sounds like something you can make at home with a screen where you don't need to travel into a rehearsal room with a guitar on your back, plug in, make noise, spend time and money and instruments and traveling. And this is after you've actually met other like-minded people in a social situation to go and do that with. So it stands to reason kids would gravitate towards something else entirely, right? Something that um, is easier to make, something that speaks to them through via the screen. I mean, I just mentioned it there, but why are podcasts so popular? As an aside, apart from the fact that people do, um, as a do as a reaction to the instant nature of modern society, they have a desire for long-form chats. But to me, it also speaks to the inherent loneliness at the heart of modern society. People replace the chat that would have once come from a household full of people with opinions and ideas and arguments and debate with the voices of strangers. And this in turn affects music. Um, who has time for a full-blown album anymore when you have four football podcasts to listen to or whatever? And you know what I mean. You get up in the morning, you flick on um, a podcast to hear some voices, especially if you live on your own. And lockdown only um, made that more profound. And hey, 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 a new episode from Bloody Dan Snow's History Hit every damn day to clog up your phone. God damn it, one a day. Anyway, you know what I mean. And it's at this point we get to our uh, next ad read. And that is the Irish band Strangers With Guns once again. And this is their new album, All Pleasure Is Just Relief. Um, they've taken that from a William Burroughs, um, a line from his, I think it's a poem, Junkie, or is it a book? I'm not really too sure. I never really read William Burroughs either, I think, than the Naked Lunch, is it? Anyway, um, it reminds me of early therapy. So if that's your kind of bag, I think you should go and check it out. The link will be underneath this. Um, it's got a sort of, you know, dark, aggressive, gloomy, sort of early 90s, alt-rock kind of vibe. And they're taking a chance by um, putting it out there on the Agitators Anonymous podcast. And if you're listening to this thinking, oh, I could do that with my band, well, hit me up in the DMs because um, I am taking these kind of ads. But yeah, go and check out a new up-and-coming Irish band. The link will be underneath this. So, back to the prognosis. How is the patient? The patient is rock and roll. So let's examine this. What are the other possible reasons why rock is not relevant in the mainstream anymore? And here is one other thing. The city. The city where you live in. Now, it's always been hard to form a band in the countryside. Because, you know, you've got, obviously, 
you've got less of a um you know you've got less people less of a pool of people to choose from and um, to pick out which is often why if you take uh, one small town there's always like one drummer who's in about four or five different bands but let's be clear about this the city is changing now connect this to the last thing that i said and that is if we are working remotely living remotely um venues are disappearing gigs will become less and less um, at least during the week for local bands. Sure, okay, there are bands playing all the time, you say, but the question is about rock in the mainstream. That's the kind of title, that's the premise of the podcast. Um, but most gigs you will notice are filled out by people either 25 to 40 or 40 plus, going all the way to 60. If there is a rock band, uh, a local rock band, young band filling out a huge venue on a Tuesday in your city, um, who aren't one of the kind of Imagine Dragon-sized bands who are huge, I guess, um, I'd wonder how many or how often that is really happening, at least with mainstream appeal. Um, you know, the city is changing. People are coming into the city less to work, so therefore they're around after work less to go and see maybe something off the cuff or something spontaneous. A gig now is something that's really had to be planned out. And let's be honest, probably, and this is also very boring, and some of these reasons for why um, things alter are quite boring and that is if your city is like mine then just the cost of a night out the cost of coming in and getting a hotel and going to see a band is just phenomenal so who do you pick you pick kiss you don't pick the new band who has a little bit of kiss in them indeed yes now here's another reason that i think about that it is it's 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 an opinion that is um in the process of being worked out and it's a bit contentious um, and, you know, you can do things, you can do a few things with this idea. You can really rail against it. You can agree with it. But I would say just take a moment to really consider it. Some people, some of you will love the principle, some won't. But I would suggest giving it a small bit of thought before you rush into a reaction. And one of the other reasons is, well, let's say immigration or multiculturalism. Huh? Well, now, look, let's be clear what I mean here. The landscape of rock music has changed. We live in, you know, as they say, they call it the global village, whatever you want to call it. Let me just list you off a few bands. ACDC, The Beatles, Led Zeppelin, Van Halen, Metallica, Oasis, Blur, Guns N' Roses, The Cure, Green Day, Pearl Jam, Boston, Iron Maiden, The Who, Pink Floyd, The Eagles. Look it, I could go on and on and on and on. But do you recognise anything about all of these names? Well, they're all white dudes with guitars, right? It's a simple fact. Most of the heavy hitters when it comes to album sales are indeed exactly that. But the world has changed. Um, kids, for the reasons outlined above, but also for cultural reasons, don't identify uh, as much with rock music anymore. It doesn't spell excitement, danger, sex or rebellion. If those are the things that kids want anymore, I'm not exactly sure. But Axl Rose is 60. Machine Gun Kelly, as I said, is maybe the new rock star, but is he really a rock star? He seems more of a white rapper, if you ask me, than a rock and roll, a classic rock and roll star in the iconography we all grew up with. Rock music simply doesn't resonate the same way culturally, at least not in my opinion or in my observation. Part of this is because culture and society has changed. Now, you may applaud that or you may not. That's not what this point is actually trying to say. Although, if you believe in cultural appropriation as a concept, you should be super upset by white kids getting into rap music 
or vice versa, or whatever way you want to take all those things. I should be really upset at the Dropkick Murphys for appropriating my culture, but I'm not. I have a couple of their albums and I quite like them. Also, I saw them on St. Patrick's Day in Dublin. God damn, that was a party. Anyway, let's get back to the idea of an atomized, lonely society. Isn't it easier for a kid in his basement to aspire to make grime or mumble rap or whatever? Whatever that is then to have abandoned guitars and rehearsals on four other people. How do they take out that loneliness, that uh, alienation, that feeling of angst? It doesn't seem that rock is the, um, is the way to deal with those things. Very often your musical tastes spoke about your stand you were taking against society. And I just don't think that rock really has that same power anymore. Throughout the modern media landscape, movies, art, entertainment, music, etc., the West promotes the idea of multiculturalism to a great percentage. I mean, look at Netflix, for example. Now, this is a podcast about why rock music is not popular in the mainstream. But if rock is the preserve, and very often traditionally of white dudes with guitars, then you could say that time's up. Um, Witness the hand-wringing lately over how white the lineup of Glastonbury was. And, you know, this may come indeed for heavy metal, have no doubt on some level. Um, but the cultural landscape has changed and kids are just, they just get into different things. They have way more choices than in 1977 when, you know, you went down to the record shop and there was like, or 78 and it was like the new Van Halen album. And that's kind of, you know, these huge um, monoliths of albums that hugely influenced society at the time. I don't think they belong to um, dudes with guitars anymore. That's just an observation of the way society has gone. How you want to take that, it's up to you. You might disagree completely. Um, Now, of course, um, the argument is kind of, on some level, um, ridiculous to say, you know, heavy metal is this and heavy metal is that and isn't diverse enough, um, as it takes no real accounting for history. And the simple fact, um, well, you know, we have to say different cultures and ethnicities are interested in different things. Uh, Why are there so few Pakistani and Indian footballers, my friend said to me, a few years ago, and I said, well, well, you know that the dominant sport in those countries and culture is cricket. She said, oh, I hey, look, admission here, I used to play cricket. Yep, put that on the back of a t-shirt, um, but go figure. So if metal is the cricket in this sporting metaphor, and um, this is why the stages at Hellfest are not that diverse. Of course, this changes as the years go by, and... Um, and there are no hard and fast rules. I would recommend watching this awesome d- small documentary online about the African band Overthrust. I think they're from Zimbabwe. Um, about a metal band and their journey to play at Vakken and to tour Europe. You know what? They weren't from Zimbabwe. They were from Botswana. And, you know, there was a metal festival there. Um You know, there's loads of good documentaries online about metal flourishing in South Africa, in some of the townships, all sorts of places in the Middle East. And so the cheap and sort of ill-informed opinion is that metal is one thing or the other. But if you go to India, you go to, um, you know, Peru, go to wherever else, um, and you will find, of course, that it resonates with many different ethnicities. Anyway, what I'm trying to say is that society and culture has changed and that... Um, you know, the iconography of rebellion is not epitomized anymore by a Kurt Cobain or an Eddie Van Halen or a whatever you want, a Jimmy Page. These things have changed. Now, what some folk in the multicultural wars see as exclusionary is simply, I think, a mixture of interests, money, availability of instruments and opportunity 
And things take time. A friend of mine went to Uruguay um, not so long ago. And I said, oh, what's the scene in Uruguay like? Because I was always super interested in South American bands, whether they're from Chile or Peru. And he just says, man, there are people there who would and could and would love to start bands, but just trying to get an instrument is really difficult. And I thought, yeah, okay. So they're like below the first rung of the ladder, ladder when you talk about trying to even get into that room and start a band. And sometimes some countries are decades behind in that respect. You know, which is why I can only think of maybe one or two Uruguayan heavy metal bands. Um, I'm sure, of course, there are more than you would imagine. But just trying to, you know, sometimes things take are decades behind or, you know, in the process of uh, flourishing. And you can't expect all of these countries to be moving at the same pace. That's just not how things work. Um, things take time. And so often you see articles written by people outside the metal scene taking aim at it for not being so, for being so, um, not being diverse enough. But of course, what they don't want to compromise is the bur- is the burgeoning scenes, as I said, in the Middle East, in Africa, in Asia, uh, indeed India. I mean, Marduk just played in Mongolia and there are Mongolian heavy metal bands. They don't want to comprehend these things because it doesn't really fit into the narrative they want to tell about heavy metal. Anyway, I digress. I digress as usual. Well, look, I mean, hey, The whole concept of Agitators Anonymous is one big digression, but let's return to the argument. Rock in the mainstream. Culture has shifted. What kids identify with as cool has changed. This stands to reason. So let's look into some other reasons why it is dead, or whatever you want to say, Mr. Simmons, in the mainstream. Streaming, Spotify, money, royalties, all that kind of thing. Primordial as an example splits everything by five. Um, It's not 1975 we're getting a songwriting credit onto a record could be worth a new house anymore. Whether you were in some rock band from the early, you know, the mid-70s and you were like trying to push one of your songs in and you thought this could be the house. Um, We don't bother arguing about that anymore, the splits and who writes what. But the truth is, when you see articles in the mainstream media about the artist, it's always written about a singular artist. Refer back to my comment above about modern indie pop, uh, rap, hip-hop, whatever you want to say, is always one person. So most articles now are written on the basis of the, um, maybe the journalist is younger and mainly only just sees the artist as a singular person. But for a band, there are five of them or four of them or three of them. So the financial split after tax is a fifth of what it would be for a single artist. Bands have labels and more traditional deals. Most bigger metal labels now offer 50-50% digital split. But for many years, it was more like 20%. Now consider if you're, um, if you're recording some electronic music at home, on your computer, on your garage band, and you upload it yourself, um, you don't need a label, um, and all the digital money that comes in is just simply yours. This is not the same situation if you were a band. So a band could get 20% a couple of years ago, then split that by five equals 4%. So for someone like me, this could mean literally 10 to 50 euro per month, if even. So if you're a digital, if you're an artist who is not working through those, you know, with those parameters, you're just uploading your stuff straight Okay, you've got to pay for a few things to upload it on Spotify. But if something clicks, um, then yeah, you can make digital money. Now you say, well, you need to update your contracts. This is a bit more difficult unless you're a solo artist. Um, Living ain't cheap anymore. So being a singer-songwriter means you keep the lion's share of the money if you're just one person. So the stark reality of what streams pays encourages people to go solo. It encourages solo artists and therefore works against the rock. Um, And the fact is that if I made a solo album here in my front room on GarageBand, completely done by myself, lo-fi, and I pressed 1,000 CDs and 300 vinyls and took all the percentage from Bandcamp in, 
If I found, let's say, 2,000 dedicated fans and they all bought a copy, I would make more money than any single primordial album that sold 30 or 40 or 50,000 copies. So you work that out in your head and do the math. So the old-fashioned record contracts, um, you know, they simply stifled bands. But like I said, there was a way out of the... Uh, there was a portal out of that into uh, the kind of sunny uplands of being a career musician. But it makes it now almost impossible to consider a career as a musician if you're part of a band. So you might as well just get rid of the band. Hey, look, Ed Sheeran, just one person, right? With his loop of pedals and this idea. I realize that in the fullness of the podcast, I've said the words Ed Sheeran more times than I've said the word sarcophago. So let's say sarcophago, 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 sarcophago to make up for that. So... And I will return to my point earlier. Take a look at any pop festival or music festival and a huge percentage of the acts will be singular names. And this is part of the reason why. Um, streaming percentages suit singular artists who can then work the social media branding um, angle much easier. So, hey, a few contentious points. Um, think about them what you will, but I think they have some validity. Um, they're, they're head scratchers, So, but let's discuss a really dead, um, a dead mundane and boring reason. And that reason is housing. The heyday of rock. Now, maybe I have some nostalgia connected to this form, to this from the cultural hegemony of American TV shows. Um, but the classic suburban house with the basement where the kids can rehearse in doesn't really exist anymore. As people live more and more in apartments or rented smaller places, um, this it's about space. People don't own their own houses as much, which is certainly more and more the case. So there isn't a music room in the house for the kids. In Ireland, houses, okay, weren't generally built with basements. But even when I think back to my own teenage years, Primordial rehearsed in a suburban house. The kids even tried to, the guys, the kids, huh, the guys before me even tried to insulate a shed in the back garden to jam in. Now, of course, they failed to put a window in and found that they nearly, um, you know, suffocated themselves in summer. But the family owned the house for years. And so what could the neighbours do about noise? Um, so we rehearsed in a suburban bedroom. It's a bit different if you don't own your own house, right? But, and I will say this, um, it used to be when visiting a mate in another area of Dublin or cycling around the city like you did back in the day, you'd always hear someone somewhere playing a drum kit in a room or a band somewhere in the distance um, on a Saturday afternoon rehearsing. Um, and I cannot tell you when I last heard that sound. Um, there just isn't basements built anymore that I think kids are starting bands in. The city centre has been mostly bought up by vulture funds, investment corporations, uh, or the state. And I think we went from a dozen rehearsal rooms in the city to maybe, I think, none for a while during lockdown, but now I think maybe one or two. There isn't a place to jam in the centre, and people don't live in the centre. This affects bands, and therefore rock and metal again pushes the creative impulse in the direction of singular music that you make on your own sitting in front of a screen with headphones on because it's just goddamn easier less space the less space people have the less real estate owned by people all of these things are factors of course it's not a very sexy or divisive reason or one that will make anyone excitable to argue with me about or angry or polarize opinion and therefore of course not get much attention but if you don't have the space to rehearse you probably aren't going to start a band right but i think it's a pretty important reason and if you want to have a band, it's an analogue process. It's a person-to-person-to-person-to-person process. And you need a genuine space to set up amps and drums. So, I mean, that is unless you want to uh, go the way of digital hell and rehearse on Zoom. God forsake that idea. But this all said, and you have to ask, who wants to be in the mainstream? Maybe Alice Cooper's right. And rock and roll will be the rebel outsider music once again. 
My friend was outside a festival early morning waiting for the shuttle. And he's like, Alan, rock will always come back. It goes in cycles. Now he'd had a beer or two and maybe not enough sleep. But me and another another cynical friend were like, nah, man, nah, not happening. We are not morning people. But we were like, it won't. And I do believe that it won't. The forces of technology are just moving too fast. And I think that rock has just been placed in too peripheral a status for young people for it ever to really resonate with them. But that said, the, you know, Master of Puppets, Stranger Things situation where it went to the top of the streaming charts, I get that. But um, I kind of think it ain't going to change anytime soon. But do, do we really need the click numbers from 10-year-olds? I would say not. Certainly, I could mention a few metal bands who must be paying some Russian bot farms a pretty penny. Either that or their managers are um, trying to cultivate clicks um, with a few bot farms. Um, bands who couldn't pull 100 people who have 10 million streams. Hmm. But that's another story for another podcast. But does metal need all this? I would say no. Who cares? Who gives a fuck, right? If metal is not popular in the mainstream. We don't need that. But certainly we saw how art and music was treated during lockdown. As I said... A hundred times before, if we get a variation on this theme in the future of lockdown and restrictions, we are done. We will be kind of done. Now, I understand the cost of living crisis is part of this as well. People, it means people can't go to see a few shows a week anymore. Lots of festivals and shows being cancelled, although lots are happening. Um, I guess the hope is that things will balance themselves out and recalibrate over the coming year or two. And the energy and living crisis will smoothen itself out. Now, the natural born pessimist that I am... I personally doubt that will happen, as some folk seem to hope, but it might. But we have to see. Do we need the mainstream? Does anyone really care that rock is dead on these terms? You know, I get it. I have to wonder, did I ever really care? But you know what? Anyone with an Iron Maiden shirt on has to acknowledge that 120 million album sales or whatever it is later. And I know many of you have just been to see them in a stadium somewhere. We have to consider that is never, ever happening again. A metal band is never going to rise to become that huge and have that kind of career ever again. They aren't getting going to get in the charts. Um, metal is just not going to be that thing that has a form of cultural um, purchase, hegemony, um, weight anymore. It's just going to be on the outside of the radar. Now, that's fine. But once these old bands are gone, they really are gone. There are no stadium fillers anymore. Volbeat, Ghost, okay, good bands, but are they really going to fill stadiums? Are they really going to have the cultural weight um, that a Guns N' Roses or a Metallica has when you've probably seen them at Hellfest? They aren't. Um, And so, like I said, you can refer to my podcast a while ago where I talk about Five Finger Death Punch. If that's our future headliners, well then, you know, I'll just have my stage and I won't be going anywhere near the main stage. Um, But that's maybe what we have to accept across the board. The atomization of society means we don't get our heroes like that anymore. Whatever happened to Leon Trotsky? He got a nice pick that made his ears burn. What happened to our dear old Lenny, the great Elmir and Sancho Panza? Whatever happened to the heroes? Whatever happened to the heroes? All the Shakespeareos, they watched their Rome burn. I'm Al Naval, and that was Agitators Anonymous. A mixture of the fantastical, the contentious, the boring and the mundane. But my contention is rock is indeed dead in the mainstream. But do we need it? Nah, we don't need it. We don't need no stinking badges. 
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.